Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. We're glad that you're here, as always, and we're just thankful to God for blessing us with another opportunity to be together to study His Word. We're back in the book of Philippians. If you were here this morning, we talked about Paul's prayer, and we talked about making application, and so we'll do that tonight, and we'll continue there in Philippians chapter 1. I made a mistake this morning I'd like to correct. I mentioned by way of what Paul was saying, I, was, I said Paul is not talking about denominations, and that's true, but I also said Paul's not talking about philosophies, and that would not exactly be accurate. For the New Testament does have reference to ideologies that are contrary to God and Christ. Passage like Acts 17 comes to mind where he's on Mar Hill talking about philosophies, never heard of the resurrection. They just enjoy hearing and telling some new thing. There is the mention in Colossians chapter 2 as well, and it's throughout. And certainly false ideas are prevalent today, and we would need discernment, not simply for false teaching, but also false philosophies and ideas. I just thought I should say that. It was on my mind. Christianity is first learned and then lived. Uh, and so that's what we're talking about this evening, the practical nature of living out what we learn. That's really what God wants us to do. First we learn and then we live. And so why do we need the things mentioned in Philippians chapter 1 verses 9, 10, and 11? Why do we need love and knowledge and discernment? Why do we need to be sincere and blameless? Why do we need to be filled with the fruit of righteousness? The reasons are spelled out in the rest of the book. And the Apostle Paul will take up and discuss the reality of going through life and the need to make decisions and why you're going to need to exercise discernment. And he lists any number of things. We'll talk about three this evening, broad categories, but they're right here actually in chapter one. In fact, they follow. I was watching a video not long ago trying to learn how to putt a golf ball more successfully. And I watched this person talk about how to do it. He talked about how you grip the club and where your eyes should be and what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing. And he went through this whole thing. And at the end, he said something interesting. He said, now that I've told you all of that, you're probably wondering, can he putt? And then he said, I'll show you. And he said, I'll do everything I just showed you. And he made putt after putt after putt after putt. And I think his position was, if I tell it to you, I should be able to do it, and I should show you that it's successful. I think if you apply that to the Apostle Paul, if it is the case that he said, this is what you need and this is what I'm praying for, one might ask, well, Paul, do you have those things? And are you doing those things? And what you will find is the Apostle Paul did have love, knowledge, and discernment. He practiced the very thing by inspiration he taught them. Why do we need these things? Application point number one, because circumstances and situations in life will demand it, especially if you live for Christ. This same apostle will write, all that live godly shall suffer persecution. You're going to encounter situations. You're going to deal with circumstances, many of which you didn't create. Some you don't enjoy, and there will be some situations in life that will actually cause you to suffer. What are you going to do when that occurs? Paul 
lived the prayer he prayed for them. Right after 9, 10, and 11, notice what verse 12 says. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me, the NESV actually says that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What circumstance, Paul? Verse number 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout all the praetorium guard and to everyone else. What's the background for this? If you go over to Acts chapter 16, hold your finger there in Philippians 1, go over to Acts chapter 16. What's he talking about? Why do you need knowledge and discernment and, and, and love? Why do you need those things? Because life is going to put you in situations and circumstances where it's absolutely going to be demanded. In Acts chapter 16, you know what the Apostle Paul is doing? What he always did, he's preaching the gospel. You know what he was having? Very often what he had, he was having success because the power is in the gospel, not in the speaker. And there were people in the first century willing to hear it just like there are today. And in verse number 14, the Bible says a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple. She was listening, verse number 14. When she had obeyed the gospel, verse number 15, she'd been baptized. And she asked us to stay with her. She prevailed, verse number 15. But notice, begin reading at verse number 16, what happens next. It happened that as we were going to a place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming you the way of salvation. Verse number 18 says she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It came out of her at that very moment when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept to observe being Romans. What happens next? Verse 22 says the crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeded to— You know what Paul was just doing a little while ago, conversing with Lydia? preaching the gospel, and a woman and her household obeyed it, and they must have been great rejoicing. She said, stay with us. She prevailed among us, and we did. And then he cast out an evil spirit. Man, you would just think, what a day. Well, that's just fantastic, everything good. But now, some men saw that their prophet was gone. They've dragged Paul into court. They've arrested him. They lied on them, and now the Bible will say, verse 23, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Let me ask you this. <laughs> There's a show. I don't, I don't know who does it, but ultimately the, the line is, what would you do? You ever heard of that show, What Would You Do? Well, apply it here. What would you do? What would you do without love, knowledge, and discernment? 
What would you do in such a dynamic? What did Paul do? Now, he's the inspired penman of Philippians 1, and he says, I'm praying for you, brethren. I'm praying that your love will abound. I'm praying that you will have knowledge and discernment so that you can approve the things that are excellent. Great, Paul. What about you? That's exactly what I did. You can see Paul's discernment in the following verses. What does he do? Verse 25 says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing. Verse 26 says there was an earthquake and Paul's chains were set free, but he stayed. Verse 27 and 28, the jailer sees that everybody's bonds are open and he assumes they've escaped and so he is going to take his own life. And Paul, verse 28, Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do not harm thyself, for we're all here. The jailer then, verse number 29, called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. What happened this night? He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He took them that very night and washed their wounds. Paul preached to him the gospel. He and his house, and they were saved that night. Go back to Philippians chapter 1, and listen to what Paul says. Paul's maturation, his knowledge, his discernment. There are any number of ways you could look at that dynamic, any number of things you could have done, any number of responses you could have had. Here's Paul's, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 14. He says in verse number 12, the greater, it, my circumstances have turned out to the greater progress of the gospel. In verse 13, he says, my imprisonment has become well known throughout the whole Praetorium Guard. And in verse number 14, he says, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Maybe we could take a quick test. How does it go for you? How does your handling of life circumstances go when you find yourself in situations? You didn't create them. You didn't cause them. But suddenly you're in them. And not only that, you're actually suffering in those situations. What do you do? How do your response to those things, how does my response to those things, number one, affect my relationship with God? Do I find myself drawing closer to him or moving further away from him? What would be the different discernment? You know who Paul knows didn't put him there? You know who Paul knows didn't leave him? You know who Paul knows didn't cause this? God hadn't done Paul wrong. And so you'll find Paul singing and praying. To whom? Well, he's singing and praying to God. The circumstances didn't move him away from God. If anything, they moved him closer. Number two, how does my handling of life circumstances impact me? Do I have peace? Am I able to rejoice? Am I hopeless or hopeful? What about Paul? You don't really have to ask. We just read it. Paul looks at this dynamic and says, brethren, the things that have happened to me, to you, Paul, yeah, to me, have fallen out unto the furtherance of the gospel. Paul, you're not despondent? No. How many times will Paul write, rejoice in the Lord in this book? Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. From prison, 
Rejoice in the Lord. Hasn't impacted him. He's not hopeless. He's not downtrodden. He's not forlorn. Did he create the dynamic? No. The situations in life are going to happen. You're going to need. I'm going to need. We're all going to need the things for which he prayed because situations are going to happen. Thirdly, how will it affect other people? How does my handling, my discernment in life's situations impact others? Again, we don't have to work hard to see how it impacted others for Paul. Number one, it's not just Paul singing. Silas is singing and praying too. Number two, the jailer who did the things to Paul that did happen actually and ultimately finds himself falling down at Paul's feet and asking, what do I need to do? And you know what Paul did? He taught him the gospel. Paul was beaten by this man, and not, not much longer thereafter, he's going to be his brother. That's the nature of the impact it had on others with Paul. We don't have to work hard. In verse number 14, Paul tells us, the brethren, the brethren trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, they have become more and more courage. Question, how does life's happening to you impact other people? When they see you in it, we can act without love, knowledge, and discernment. We can act without being filled with the fruit of righteousness. We can act without Christ and without doing things that glorify and praise God. Or we can abound in love, use God's knowledge, discern all things, and then be blameless and righteous. Why do we need it? Because life is going to happen to every single one of us, and we will find ourselves in situations, whether we created them or not, where we're going to need to discern what we do next. Brings us to point number two. Also right here in the chapter, why do we need it? Because we're going to encounter various kinds of people in our life. Paul begins in verse number 15 by saying some. He's going to talk about motives from these individuals. He'll list two different kinds of people, two different kinds of motivations, and he meets both. He says in verse number 15, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. And then he talks about the motivation of the latter, those who are doing it out of goodwill there in verse 16. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Then he shifts back to the ones doing it out of envy and strife. He says, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause distress in my imprisonment. We're going to meet people. We're going to meet all kinds of people. We're going to need to discern. Some are going to be envious of you. Have you ever met a person who is envious of you, jealous of you, spiteful of you, has ill will against you? You will absolutely meet those people. Hard to avoid them. You'll meet them. They'll make sure of it. On the other hand, we'll meet people of goodwill. We'll meet people who seek us good and are great to be around. People will have different motivations when interacting with us. We'll have to discern 
the person, their actions, their intentions. And after we discern it, we'll have to decide what do we do in response to it. Christ, our perfect example, he met both kinds of people. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse number 10, Jesus met a man. And that man said something to Jesus, and this is the recorded response. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Jesus met a man that had the kind of faith that he says, I haven't met anybody in Israel with that kind of faith. What a thing to say about a person. That person was kind to the Lord. He was sincere with the Lord. He was, had pure motives with the Lord. He was just as nice as he could be. Jesus says, what an example. I've never seen anybody with that kind of faith. The good people will be easy to deal with. In fact, they'll be allies. We'll seek them out. Uh, we'll want to be around them. We'll want to hear their voice because they're so encouraging all the time, and they're so nice. There's not much to discern there. We'll just keep doing the things that they're doing, and everybody will work together, and it'll be fine. We meet those kind of people, and what a blessing they are. On the other hand, Jesus also met the Pharisees. And Jesus is in the presence of Pilate. Matthew 27, 18 actually records Pilate's knowledge. With reference to Pilate and Jesus standing before him, the Bible records, speaking of Pilate, for he knew that out of envy they had delivered him. The he is Pilate, the they is the Pharisees, and the him is Jesus. Pilate knew it. They delivered him for envy. You will meet those kinds of people too. Question, what will you do? What will you do when you meet people who are doing what they are doing out of envy and strife? You know they are with the intentions of hoping to add distress to your life. As you got up and got dressed and went out to the day, so did they. But they were hoping. If they got a chance to see you, they were hoping. I hope I do. I have some distress I want to give them. I have some level of angst I want to put in their life, and I don't want them to miss me. I don't want them to sort of stumble on it. I want to make sure that they know that I don't like them and that I hope they fail a lot. And it's my intentions, if I could make them fail, to do all that I can. What do you do when you meet these people? Jesus met the Pharisees, and it seems like every page of the gospel, every page of the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's as if they are seeking him out. Sometimes they're in places where it doesn't seem like anybody should be. On one occasion, Matthew 12, they're just walking through a field, and the disciples grab some grain, and they see it. What are you doing here? What are you even out here on the field watching for? And sure enough, they saw it, and they went to Jesus. Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. Conversation breaks out. What are you going to do? Why do you need love and knowledge and discernment? Because you're going to meet these people. What did Jesus do? You just read the account. He suffered at their hand without retaliation. He died for the very people who envied him. While on the cross, he's asked, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And when they repented and were baptized in Acts 2, he did forgive them. And they became his children. What's Paul doing? He suffered at their hands, Acts chapter 16. He went to prison and was beaten. And what did he do? He helped the jailer. Don't harm yourself. What did he do when he got out? He kept preaching the gospel to the very people who put him there. What does he say he was doing? Rejoicing in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In fact, he says it here. Look at verse 18. Does Paul practice what he prayed? What then? Not only, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached or proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Paul wasn't just praying it for them. He was practicing the very thing he— Why do you need to grow? Why do I need to grow? Why do we need to mature? Why do I need knowledge and love and discernment? Because life is going to put us in situations where we're going to have to make decisions. We're going to have to decide. Not what, what happens to me, that's been done. What I'm going to have to decide is what do I do next? Because people are in the world, and you're going to meet both kinds. Story is told about two men going to a city. But you're going to meet both kinds. That's all I say on that. That's all. That was for Bethany. This, there, there is a point, though, you're going to meet both kinds of people. You're going to meet good people. Absolutely, that's what the story is about. Two men go to a city. They meet a man outside the gate. One and asks the older man at the gate, what kind of people are in this town? He says, what kind of people are in the town did you leave? He said, they were bad people. This is why I left. I, they were awful. I, I mean, they were cutthroat. They'll do you all kinds of harm. He said, you'll meet those people in this city. Second man came up to the gate. Same man, he asked him, what kind of people are in this town? He said, what kind of people in the town you left? He said, they were good people. Salt of the earth kind of people. Get your shirt off their back kind of people. He said, you'll meet those people in there. What's the point? They're just people. And you'll meet both kinds in every city and in every place and in every walk of life. And one of the things that trips Christians up is they keep just trying to look for the one group of people. They keep thinking that they can only meet the good people. And when they meet the bad people, they have no idea what to do. You would, I would, if verse 9, 10, and 11 was mine, if I could discern that that's part of life and that's what's going to happen. And it doesn't determine what I do. I determine that. Paul is singing and praying after the beating. And then he preached the gospel to the very man who did it. You're going to need this. I'm going to need this. Situations in life are going to demand it. People are going to demand it. Thirdly, we're going to have to deal with death. That's the very next thing that Paul talks about. And it's, it's our issue. Death is an absolute reality of life. And it's really amazing. It's like we don't think about the entire process. But really, from the moment we are conceived, we start growing. And that growth and development and physical maturation has an inevitable end. It is our life that heads us toward death. And somehow we get so enamored with living that we start to deny and reject and fear and refuse to deal with where living ends. 
from the very inception, it has an end. Just this week, I saw a trailer for a Netflix show about a family that lost a child. And the family said in the trailer that the father was speaking, he said, we can't let go. I just could not let her go. And so they chose to cryogenically freeze genetic material of the child. As one person was talking, he said their hope is that the technology will advance to cure whatever took their child, and maybe in the future they could have her back. That's how some people deal with death. We just can't let go. We have to figure out a way. That the world would lack discernment to properly understand and thus process and deal with death is understandable, but that shouldn't be true of Christians. Well, what's the difference between Christians and, and non-Christians, and why do you think they should be different? It's one of the things Paul mentioned in his prayer. Knowledge makes us different. God told us. Christ showed us. Well, we do remember our loved ones. Of course we do. We do grieve our loved ones. Of course we do. We do mourn our loved ones. Of course we do. We do sorrow that they're Of course we do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 addresses these very things. And, and, and the, the apostle Paul says, it's not that we don't sorrow, it's that we don't sorrow as others who have no hope. There is then lies the difference, is the knowledge that Christians have, a, a hope that Christians have. But it would be a lack of discernment to go around suggesting that we shouldn't sorrow. Yeah, we shouldn't hurt, we shouldn't cry, we shouldn't grieve because we're going to heaven, so just get over it. Well, that would be a lack of discernment unto itself. Of course, that's not the way to deal with it and process loss and grief. With all of the knowledge that our Lord had, to include the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead, he stood in front of his tomb and wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. Paul's not talking about that. In fact, the very point is discernment, but death is real, and Paul understands that. See, he's not talking about our grieving and mourning over our loved ones. See 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 for that. He's just talking about the subject itself, dealing with death, processing that reality, and it has to be dealt with. It's a human reality, but there is a divine solution, and that's the point. The whole point of the Bible is redemption. That's what it's all about. We generally talk about that being redemption from sin, but carry that all the way through. Why do we need to be redeemed from sin? Because we're going to die. And if you die with sin, having not been redeemed, you can't go to heaven. That's why you need to be redeemed. Hebrews chapter 2 describes our Lord, and part of the reason he came and in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse number 14 and verse number 15, the Hebrew writer says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Any number of passages talk about why Jesus took on flesh, that he took on flesh, and why he did it. This particular passage says that through death, well, that's why, he took on flesh so he could die. And that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So, hold on to the word destroy. And then add to that the word in verse 15. And deliver them. He's going to destroy and deliver them who through fear of death 
were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's why he's coming. It's why we can have a different take ultimately about the subject of death. It's not that we don't sorrow and don't mourn. No, see, 1 Thessalonians 4 for that. We do sorrow. It does hurt. And we do remember, and we will mourn. And for some, it may feel like it lasts a lifetime. Sure, that's just as normal and reasonable and discerning as anybody could be about the pain of loss. But even in that section of Scripture, Paul says, we have hope. And here he says, Jesus overcame it. He delivered us from the fear of bondage. He delivered us from that. Revelation 1 and verse number 18, Jesus would describe himself as having the keys to death and hell. He not only has the keys, he is the key to death and hell. It's love and knowledge and discernment is necessary because death is coming. Everybody's going to have to deal with it. Yours, someone you love, it, whether it's sudden, expected, unexpected, whether it's peaceful, death is coming. If the Lord delays his coming, we're all going there. What are you going to do about that? You need discernment for that. What follows is Paul's discernment. Concerning the subject, Paul says several things. Beginning in verse 21, Paul says, first of all, Living is great, but death is gain. That's verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is the only reason death could be gain. Christ is. Christ is the only reason for that. Paul talks about production versus rest. That's why he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. On the one hand, I could do that which is fruitful for the Lord. On the other hand, I could be at rest at last, reaching the shores of eternity. I could at last rest. Verse 22, but if I am to live on in the flesh, that will mean more labor for me. Production. I will be able to bring forth fruit to the Lord. I can do that if I live on in the flesh. And that's what makes it a tough choice in the first place, as Paul sees it. And then he gets to verse 23. He understands death is how we get to be with Christ. He says, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. He says it again, for that is very much better. What's very much better? Being with Christ. Better than what? Better than living here. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and listen to him discuss it there with reference to having, uh, being clothed and, and, and not being clothed and, and being with the Lord and being absent from the Lord. He gets into a little more lengthy discussion about it there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Context began back up in chapter 4 where he's already been talking about suffering and seeing the eternal and light affliction. But he says in verse number 5, chapter 5, verse 1, for we know 
Even that's a matter of knowledge and, and the ability to discern. We know something. What do we know? We know that if our earthly house, the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about our bodies. He said, we have an earthly tent, but we know if this one is torn down and short, we have one in heaven eternally waiting for us. Verse number two, for indeed in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Well, that's Paul's point in Philippians chapter 1. Paul looks at death and he says, you know, that's how I get to be with Christ. And being with Christ is far better. Life is absolutely necessary, absolutely essential, and the amount of good we can do with it must not be understated. Paul is simply looking at death and then making these discernments relative to it. But it is coming. It's how we get to be with Christ. And hopefully we'll all grow to the point where we too believe that's very much better. While we do here and what we do while living, absolutely essential. And Paul will talk about that, laboring for the Lord, blessing the lives of others. In fact, Paul sees his life as a vehicle to bless others through the service of the Lord. And so while he's here and living, that's how he'll use it. Notice what he says next. He says, but I am a hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Death is a very real issue. I said we make application tonight, and there are three points there. There is circumstances in life. You and I are going to need discernment because life is going to demand it of us. It's going to put us in situations, and we're going to have to make decisions about how we respond to them. And then people. If we could only be around the good ones, wouldn't that be great? No, but that's not the way it works at all. Some are going to envy, and some are going to create strife. And Paul says some are going to actually do it with the intention of harming you. And then death is a very real reason. If there is another point to be made, let me make some practical matters then about the application that we just made. Discernment has a lot to do, at least in my estimation, with thankfulness. It is very often a lack of discernment that makes one unthankful. And that also is talked about with great regularity in the Bible. If you go back and think about the nation of Israel, they were in bondage. They were serving with rigor. They were beaten. It was harsh. It was cruel, taskmasters. And what happened? They were delivered by God through Moses. The ten plagues, the Red Sea, the manna from heaven, the voice of God, the law written with the finger of God, water from rock, the tabernacle, sacrifice, communion, forgiveness. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6 says they were given houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, wells they didn't dig. Another pastor says, I think in Deuteronomy, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. They were even given healthy, successful births and God's protection. And a lack of discernment caused them to be unthankful. That unthankfulness led to murmuring, complaining, and a heart given to other things. Well, how does that apply to us? You know, we have no guarantees in this life. We are owed nothing. The very fact that we're here means somebody loved, cared enough for us to actually bear us and bring us all the way through birth. And you very well know not every person who's conceived gets that privilege. I mean, we're starting at the very basics of this life. Not everybody gets that, but you did. I did. Some of us were given more, though. Some of us had two parents who loved them. Some people had one parent who loved them. Others may have had an aunt or an uncle or a grandmother or a grandfather who loved them. Much of life is spent being given things by someone else because very long in our lives we cannot do for ourselves. Many have or at least have had good health. Many do things, unfortunately, that harm themselves and then complain about the pain and consequences that they've caused. Most importantly, if you're a Christian, it means somebody led you or you found our Lord Jesus Christ. The singular person that Paul references as being the absolute difference in life. But it's a lack of discernment on our part that will have us emulate Israel. It will have us being unthankful. It will lead us to murmuring and complaining as if we were old and entitled. Behaving like spoiled children who, although having been given everything, don't appreciate anything. And then complain about the one thing they perceive they don't have. An issue Paul didn't specifically deal with. He talked about it, though, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And so let me say by way of application further, that's one issue. A lack of discernment will lead to unthankfulness, and unthankfulness will lead to murmuring and complaining and a bitterness of spirit. Number two, Paul didn't specifically have to deal with this, but we do, and that's a lack of discernment relative to social media. The first question that should be asked with regards to actions, you and I should discern what's excellent and so we should ask, should I do this? Is this the best thing for me to be done? Does this glorify God? Does this seek to please Christ? That would be number one, I should ask. But then the second thing should be, should I post it? How often have you opened it up and said, wow, they put that out there? There are images out there. There's items in the background, there's actions, there's people, there's ideas, there's words, there are phrases, there's songs, there's sermons. All of this stuff is out there. Who did that? You did that. Why did you do that? Why would one think that I should do that? That's discernment. That's a discernment issue. Should I do it? Well, that's number one. Should I post it? Well, that would be number two. 
a third area. Should I say it? Words are given so much attention in Scripture because of how powerful and important they are. There's actually a passage in Proverbs 19 that says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Words are associated with things like fire, poison, swords, the kinds of things that can cause death. That's what they're associated and attributed to. And so words are too powerful for the test to simply be, I thought it, so I said it. No, you would need discernment beyond thinking it. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 6, the Bible says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. I heard one person's explanation of that. It went something like this. He said, you know what salt does? It makes you thirsty. Your words ought to be those that people thirst after. They want to hear it. They're seasoned with salt because people want to hear it. Makes them thirsty to hear more. Well, that's the way Jesus' words were. People wanted to hear it. Multitudes, multitudes, multitudes. That's the way Paul's words were because the Gentiles wanted to receive him glad. They, they came and the whole city came out to hear the gospel. The tongue, it's essential that there be discernment in it. And sometimes people will say things like, well, you can't tell me what I can and cannot do. You can't tell me what I can and cannot post. And so let's end with two more thoughts. If you have your Bibles, look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And please know, it wouldn't be discernment on your part if I was able to tell you what you could and could not do. Well, that's not discernment on your part then, is it? That's not the way it works at all. The couple of thoughts that need to be had, though, would be these. The fact that we can do a thing does not mean we should do a thing. And people talk all the time about having rights and I'm thankful to live in a country where we have freedoms and liberties too. I'd rather live there than somewhere else. I'm thankful for that. But sometimes people get so enamored with their rights, they, they miss some biblical principles and teaching relative to the exercise of those rights. The rights never get taken away if you do use discernment in exercising them. You still have the right. You just chose to exercise discernment in the use of it. Nobody ever taken the right away. And so, it's not a matter of whether or not you can, it's a matter of whether or not you should. The fact that you can do a thing does not mean we should show and tell everybody else we can do a thing. There's two things at work. Should I do it? I don't know. You have to decide that. Should I tell it? Well, now that's a matter of discernment. And should I show and tell everybody else what I know I can do? That's the third area of discernment, and Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse number 8, he begins by saying, But meat commendeth not us to God, for neither if we eat or are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means the liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the constant of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ dies? 
Did Paul take away your right? No, he says you have your right. You have this liberty. But he says, listen, you should exercise in such a way that it doesn't harm other people. The weak brother in question. In fact, he says, if he sees you do it based on your knowledge, which he lacks, he might be emboldened to do it. And that would be sin for him, Romans 14, 22. Paul continues in verse number 12 by saying, but when ye so sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Let me ask you this. Do you think that would include social media? Do you think that would include what you say? Do you think that would include who you interact with relative to God's people and how you treat them? And is anybody taking away your rights to, 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 for Scripture to demand that you exercise discernment with those rights? Paul says you need love, you need knowledge, and you need discernment because you're going to be in situations in life and you're going to have to interact with other people. Everybody will. He says something else in chapter 10. In chapter 10 and verse 23, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. We would all have to ask, it's not a matter of just doing the thing, but why does everybody else have to know you did the thing? It's not a matter of just doing the thing. Why do you have to tell everybody else that you know what your rights are, know what you can do, and can't nobody tell you? Where is the concern for others? That's discernment. You're going to be in situations. Christians need maturity. Somebody might say yet again, well, Eric, who are you? I'm not on your, first of all, first of all, I'm not the Facebook police. I'm not. Second of all, I'm not on there enough to even decide what other people are doing or not doing. I just know Christians have a responsibility to God, to self, and to others, and that's never going anywhere. And Christians have to exercise discernment in what they say and what they do to God, to self, and to others. And Paul says, I'm praying for you. We all need the mind of Christ because we're all going to encounter situations just like Christ did. The circumstances of life must be discerned. If we didn't create them or if we did, if they're fair or unfair, if they've caused us suffering or caused us to rejoice, circumstances and situations will come where you and I are going to need to exercise love, knowledge, and discernment. We're going to interact with people. Some will have pure minds and some will have impure minds. Some will have good motives and some will have envious, detrimental motives. Some will be enemies, some will be allies. Some will hurt us and some will help us. And both are going to require discernment. And we're going to have to deal with death. We're on our way. We are on a one-way path to the grave. Life on earth ends in death. And death is the only way to be with Christ. And Paul's discernment of it is life is the way to bear fruit for Christ, but our hearts don't end at the grave because we have hope beyond the grave. Paul prayed for the brethren to grow. 
And then almost immediately after the prayer, Paul says, brethren, I'm practicing the very same thing. He knew they needed it. He knew he needed to live it. And so do we. What is the key to it all? If we were just to continue to read through this book, we will find it in Christ. For me to live is Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And the very God of peace shall keep your hearts and mind through Jesus Christ. It's always Christ. If you're not a Christian this evening, we implore you to become one. There is no better life than the Christian life. There is no more wonderful way to live, no more righteous way to live, no more redeemed way to live than to be a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less. And so we invite you to come to Jesus and get to know him. And change your heart, change your mind, change your life. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24. Jesus said, if you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sins. The very person of whom we talked tonight, Paul, was once Saul, and he lived in opposition to Jesus. And then it was knowledge that changed his life. He met Jesus, and he changed his heart. He repented. You need to repent. Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water. Paul was baptized for the remission of sins, Acts twenty two sixteen. and you need to do the same thing. And friends, if you've never done that, you need to, but if you have, tell you a quick story and then I'll be done. I was somewhere in a gospel meeting one time and they asked me to preach a series of sermons. And it's not typically done this way, but it was interesting that they requested it. They said, we'd like for you to preach a sermon too. And then they enumerated and broke down the congregation. I think my memory may fail, but it went something like, we'd like for you to preach to the elders and the, and the ministers and the deacons and their wives. And then we'd like for you to preach to the seniors, and then we'd like for you to preach to the youth, and then we'd like for you to preach to the married, and then we'd like for you to preach to the singles, and then we, and by the time they were done, they had parsed out every section of the congregation, each one a different, a different series of thoughts, and it just hit me. One, that's a lot of work. That hit me. But two, it hit me that that's the way the epistles would have been read. Like, you stand before a congregation of God's people, and everybody in the room is not married. Everybody in the room is not an adult. Everybody in the room is not single. Everybody in the room is not young. Everybody in the room, and you go through that. So let me ask, how does it then get heard? Because we only preach one sermon to every segment of a congregation. If a family of Christians were on the run in the first century and they read Peter's letter, how would the young people have responded to that letter? How would the seniors have responded? How would the young people have responded? How would the married have responded or the singles and on and on the goes? The point is simply this. You should hear the sermon where you are in your life and make application to your soul where you are and take God's word and grow from there on to maturity. Doesn't really matter what other people do with the sermon. It only matters what you do with God's word. We need to abound in love. 
We need knowledge. And we need discernment. Friends, every one of us needs to grow in these areas. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.